Father, we exalt you and your son and your spirit over every pretension, over every lofty argument against your goodness. So for every argument that we've started to believe this week, that your goodness is not what it is, that your holiness isn't what it is, that walking your way isn't worth the cost, Lord, we exalt you above other gods this morning. We exalt you above the gods of materialism. We exalt you above the gods of comfort and pleasure. We exalt you above the gods of of self-righteousness and fear and claim your lordship over our lives. We receive your lordship over our lives afresh, over our bodies, over our hearts, over our mind, over our wallet. So come Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is really good to be back at teaching. The only thing uh, better than teaching is when uh, people that I've had an opportunity to disciple in teaching teach and do well, right? Um, I feel like, uh, I mean, Holden, Holden preached an incredible message two weeks ago. Steph preached a great message a couple weeks ago. I'm really thankful to have Randy and Steph on the preaching team. I'm just going to plant a flag right now. I will die on the hill of empowering women. Okay, so, uh, and not as, not as the world gives, right? Not as the world gives empowerment, because in that world, men have to become less for women to be more. No, 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 my friend. We're just all going to sprint into the kingdom together, you know what I'm saying? And I feel like people do this thing when somebody else preaches that's not me, and they want to tell me how good they did, and I say, I'm really sorry, but that was a great sermon. Why are you apologizing? If, if, somebody, if, somebody, if somebody in our midst exercises their gifts and it goes well, we all win right? Because it's for the building up of the body, not just, not just so that that's really cool. But I am glad to be back and uh, have some fire shut up in my bones this morning. So if you got a Bible, let's go to Psalm 73. We'll be kind of all over the place, but Psalm 73 will be our anchor, okay? Uh, in 2014, A shame and vulnerability researcher was invited to a TEDx event. TED Talks are these like 10-minute, 15-minute viral talks on ideas. Uh, Shame and vulnerability researcher was invited to give a talk at a TEDx event in Houston, Texas. Her name uh, now lives in our minds. Her name is Brene Brown. Now, back in 2014, none of us have ever heard of her. Uh, Since then, I mean, I've read a lot of her books. She's got a podcast. She's kind of a household name. In the midst of, she was giving this talk on shame and vulnerability and connection in Houston seven years ago. And she said in the midst of this talk, she kind of just drops this bomb. She says, we are the most in debt, addicted, obese, and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. We are the most in debt, addicted, obese, and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. Brene says that we are, I say that like I know her, we But don't, if you've read her books, you feel like you do, you know? Um, Brene says that we are numbing the overwhelming anxiety and fear that we feel at the thought of being vulnerable and connecting with someone. We're numbing that out. We're numbing it out with spending. We're numbing it out with substances. We're numbing it out with food. We are doing anything we can to numb our anxiety. And, and, And... 
from my perspective as a pastor, now remember, I'm a pastor. I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. I, I am not a professor. I'm not an academic. I, I am a pastoral theologian. I am here and called to the healing of your soul. Uh, I'm seeing this manifest, this anxiety that Brene was talking about. I'm seeing it manifest in our culture and in, and in us, our spiritual family, in about three ways. And, and the first way is this like atmospheric anxiety. There is just in the water we're drinking and in the air we're breathing, there's just a, um, like a, an anxiety there, right? And to me, it's the pollution, right, that comes from 24-hour cable news and, and social media. And I just want to footnote here that I harp on media a lot. I harp on social media a lot. Um, I do not think Fox News is better than CNN, um, I, th- I think CNN is worse than Fox News. I think Fox News is worse than CNN. It is a race to the bottom with those two, right? And the reason I harp on social media and cable news so much is, hear me on this, nothing is more toxic to your soul in the practice of the way of Jesus than talking points. I don't care where you get them. Nothing is more toxic to your practice of the way of Jesus Nothing is more harmful to discipleship in our cultural moment. There is no bigger obstruction to practicing the way of Jesus together than talking points on cable news and social media. The unholy trinity of social media, 24-hour news, and the political landscape of our cultural moment are seeking to form you not into people of love. That's what Jesus is here to do. They're seeking to form you into people of anger. Okay, and as as the saint of the church, Yoda, says. (laughs) Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side, right? And and that's what's happening. There's a a generalized anxiety, an atmospheric anxiety. And every once in a while, this happened to me last year, this time last year, if you know me well. Last year, my anxiety about this time really flared along with my asthma in a weird way. Uh, it was like the atmospheric anxiety got down, not just into my head and my heart, but it like got down into my body, right? If you struggle with anxiety, you know, if you have never struggled with anxiety, you think it's all in someone's head. When you're experiencing anxiety, you realize it like, it like lives inside of your body. Like it's in your muscles. It's in your, it's inside of your chest cavity. It's inside of you. And that anxiety gets, sometimes gets down into us for seasons, right? But it's just a season, right? So something shifts and the season ends, right? And the anxiety goes away, right? And, and sometimes um, that's after like a work transition. Some women uh, experience that after giving birth. Um, but some women, that doesn't go away. And for others of us, that, that seasonal anxiety that gets down into us kind of starts to hang out, right? Like you wake up in the morning and it's just like, hello there. I have our whole day planned for us, you know? And you're like going to bed at night and it's like, I can't wait to see you tomorrow. It's just tucking you into a warm embrace of fear, right? Then there's this like clinical anxiety that comes. And, you know, when I was dealing with seasonal anxiety, I, I found that, you know, asking people to pray with me, praying with people, really seeking the Lord in some unusual ways for me uh, really helped me kind of move through that season. But there's some people that like, that buddy's here to stay, right? And so that's where clinical anxiety, acute anxiety begins. Like, we need to start talking about therapeutic intervention. We need to talk about medication. These are all gifts that God gives us. Anxiety is, to one degree or another, a part of our lives. Consciously, unconsciously, deeply or seasonally, it's a part of our lives. And and then there's Jesus. Jesus, as Sam and Amelia just helped us remember, who is himself peace. 
See, sometimes we vision Jesus like Santa. He's got this goodie bag over his shoulder, and if he roots around in there, he'll find peace and give it to you. Peace isn't something that Jesus gives you. It's, it's who he is. Peace lives in his body. He is peace embodied in a way that anxiety lives in ours. To the end, you know, he, he is peace. Jesus comes and says, do not be afraid. So how do we live in this tension of our fear and anxiety and the peace that Jesus promises us to bring? That's what I want us to talk about this morning on the second Sunday of Advent, which is about peace. I want us to talk about peace. And we're going to do that in Psalm 73, but I want to do a quick flyover of everything Jesus has to say about peace. So like I said, we'll just be here about an hour. Okay? So peace is essential to who Jesus is. In fact, like when I talk to new believers people that are or like people that like kind of knew about Jesus but now are in a relationship with him. Do you know what they tell me has changed for them? They'll say, I feel so much peace, right? Long before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said, yep, that sounds about right. That's what will happen. Look at this passage from Isaiah chapter nine. This is Isaiah a prophet talking about Jesus is coming centuries before Jesus comes. He says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity, and the passionate commitment, the zeal of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Centuries before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said, God's chosen king will come. Feel pressure in the moment just to say, God's chosen king will come and will not be elected through any American electoral process. Okay? Just want to let you know. He will bring with him peace. He will bring with him a government, a reign, R-E-I-G-N, a reign that will bring order and peace to our lives. And he will be able to do this because he is the Prince of Peace. Now, fast forward, in just a few months before Jesus was born, uh, Jesus' mom's cousin says this of Jesus while Jesus is still in the womb. Because of God's tender mercy, this is Luke 1, because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break on us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Jesus will guide his people to the path of peace. Now, surely this is a political statement God's people, Israel, have lived under the weight of unbelievable oppression for the last 400 years when when Zechariah says this in the book of Luke. They've always been under the boot of another government. There's There's been violence and oppression, and he's saying there will be peace. There will be peace. The way that the early church embodied this, first 300 years of Christianity, the way of Jesus was nonviolent. You can do with what you want with your conscience, but just recognize, like, if you're a gun owner, a Christian in the first three centuries would have no concept for that. Because if we live by the sword, we died by the sword. Now, we can talk about Augustine and just war theory and all of these kinds of things, but I'm just saying, the way that the early church embodied that, these are not arguments, these are assertions, the way that the early church embodied that was through nonviolence. So it's a, it's a, it's a political statement, if there ever was one, that when Jesus comes, he will bring with him peace. But it's got to be a psychological one too, don't you think? It's got to be a psychological statement. I mean, Paul says, 
Jesus, his peace, will guard, literally means walk guard duty around your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will walk guard duty around your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's psychological. It's a calm tranquility that is ours in Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm leaving you with a gift. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give is not a gift the world can give. So don't be troubled or afraid. He says, I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you're going to have many trials and sorrows. See, that's the trick. We want Jesus for the peace, not the trial and the sorrows. It's a package deal. He says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You know, when Jesus rises again, when he is the risen king, and he appears to his disciples for the first time, do you know what he says? Do you know what his first words to them in both Luke and John? His first words are, peace be with you. This kingdom that Jesus has come to establish, Paul says, is one of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when the Apostle Paul writes letters to the churches he started, do you know how he opens those letters? He repeats himself every time. He says, may the God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Now, the greatest peace that we enjoy in this life, the reason you're in this room, is because we have peace with God. Right? Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us to this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. He says this. This is interesting. How did that peace come about? Paul says this in Romans 5. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, we were, and while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in this wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. See, this king comes, this prince of peace comes, and he brings peace First, not, he does not first bring peace governmentally. He first brings peace between us and God. He brings peace through his living and his dying and his rising again, and it secures for us peace. See, before that, you have to wrestle with this, right? Before Jesus, you and I are enemies of God. doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. After all, Jesus says, love your enemies. That's natural to the way of who God is, right? But we're still his enemies, but something happens in the life of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the birth and the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus such that there is now peace with God. And so the angels who proclaim Jesus' birth say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. At Christmas, we discover, best of all, that God is pleased with us, that we can have peace with God a peace that begins in our hearts and will one day cover the whole earth. But if that's the case, if peace is ours through Jesus, if, if we have easy access to peace, if we have a credit card of peace that has no limit and for which the bill has already been paid, why is it that we deal with anxiety so profoundly? 
If this is you, if you're someone that experiences that level of anxiety, if you're not careful, you can start, if I'm not careful, you can start feeling like a bad Christian, can't you? Got all this anxiety over here, and Jesus says I'm supposed to have peace, so there must be something wrong with the way I'm pursuing Jesus that's leading to that anxiety, right? And so maybe if I prayed more, or if I was more faithful, or if I did more for God, it would kind of go away. See, Jesus wants to heal our trauma. He wants to do inner healing. He want, there's, there's some reasons that anxiety just starts to live in us that Jesus can heal. But it's not very often that it's just flipping on one worship song and praying for 15 minutes in the morning that can make that go away. So here we are in this tension, right, of like, I've got all this, ang- I've got all this anxiety, but I've got peace at my disposal, and, 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 and there's a connecting point that we often miss, right? Because what, what I tended to think for most of my Christian experience until about eight years ago, 10 years ago, was that if I just thought hard enough, if I just felt deep enough, then that peace would be mine, right? If I was more obedient, what I was missing was the way that God gets his truth, and it's objectively true that Jesus wants to give us some peace, the way that God gets truth down into our bodies and into our souls isn't just by us thinking thoughts or feeling feelings, but by taking on practices, right? We take up practices that enable us to embody that, and the things that God wants to give us suddenly find their way down into our bodies and into our souls and into our hearts and into our minds, Right, so here's the the objective truth: is that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the every word from the mouth of God. Right, and, and so the practice that the church has embodied in regard to that truth has, for centuries, been fasting. Right, it's a way to get that dependence on God and that hunger for God down deep into our bodies and into our souls, and to shape the way that we live. And and so my contention this morning is that it, to, for us to experience this peace that Jesus wants to give us in the midst of this world of anxiety, to experience the peace that, that Jesus wants to give us, it's not going to come simply by thinking thoughts or feeling feelings. It's going to come through practices. It might come through more than practices, but it won't come through less than practices. It might come through more than practices. We might need to talk to a doctor. We might need to en- engage in therapy. We might need to seek inner healing. We might need to recover from our trauma, Right? we might need to confess the ways that we actually like our anxiety, right? We might have to confess the ways that we've actually come to like how our anxiety and having anxiety in our lives actually gives us more control than not. Because if I can bow out of things because I'm anxious, now I'm in control again. So some of us might need to confess the idol of idol, that anxiety has actually become an idol in our life. But, 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 but my contention this morning is that the path to peace in a world gone wrong, the practice that will get us to peace is worship. That worship paves the path to peace in an anxious and fearful world. It's, it's how we connect our anxious lives with and our anxious moment with the peace of Jesus. So let me show you what I mean by that in Psalm 73. If you got, if you got your Bible, let's look at Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Psalm 73 begins this way. Truly God is good to Israel. You got to read that with snark, that first sentence. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. 
Now, right above verse 1 in italics, my Bible says 73, and then it says a psalm of Asaph. Asaph, Asaph. Asaph is a leader among God's people. He's a worship leader. He is the Julia and the team. He leads the team of worshipers among the people of God. And he's saying, you know, as I'm standing there leading worship every Sunday, I see God being so good to all of these people. But for me, it's not working out that way. Surely God is good to them, but he's not good to me. And in verses 3 through 12, Asaph catalogs his anxieties over why that is, why his feet are almost stumbling, why he's led to believe, well, God must be good to them, but not to me. So he starts in verse 3, For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. By all accounts, Jeff Bezos is not a nice guy, but he got to go to space before I did. I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. I love this. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. See, if you're reading another version, it probably says their bodies are sleek. Now, sleek is not a term of, it is a term of our our ampleness. Someone who's sleek is someone who's just got a little extra to love. Do you know what I'm saying in the... And uh, that sounds strange, right? Because in our cultural moment, we like skinny. But in the, in the cultural moment that Asaph is writing, you're lucky, if you're a common person, you're lucky to get one meal a day. And you're like this big around because you're like scraping the earth for your food. But if you're royalty and you don't have to work, you eat three meals a day and you just keep your feet up and you are sleek. <laughs> and he, so I like in the New Living Translation, it says, verse seven, these fat cats have every... <laughs> These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. He says, surely God is good to Israel. I'm sure in theory I can agree that God is good to his people. But as for me, it seems like God is being better to the unrighteous people. We had a moment like this. When we were walking in fertility, when we were walking through infertility, this is is a terrible revelation of my own heart that probably shouldn't be on the internet, but it's going to be. I used to think, man, if my wife was only a drug addict, then she could get pregnant. Right? I mean, I'm over here, like, I'm not just trying to be a Christian. I'm trying to be like a professional Christian. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not. Right? So we have these moments as we're walking with Jesus of like, why do, why if God promises me a follower of him provision and protection, why is that not happening? Where it looks like if I just kind of what rejected God's ways and went with the wicked, everything would be fine. Asaph is all torn up about this. I hope I'm not reading anxiety into this. We can wrestle that out later. But I think there's some anxiety for Asaph about the goodness of God in his moment and his fear. And so he says in verse 13, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. You ever felt that way? If you haven't yet, walk with Jesus for about five more minutes and it'll get hard. Yeah? Asaph isn't at peace and the calm tranquility of, that is the birthright of the people of God, it's far from him. And he almost, this is what he almost does, he almost, in our language, he almost deconstructs. 
he almost logs onto Facebook or logs onto Twitter or logs onto Instagram. And by the way, if you're a millennial and you're paying attention to people that are deconstructing, pay attention to how it's like, a, it's like they're reading out of the same playbook, our friends that are deconstructing. They say the same things. They like the same accounts. It's the same process. It, it, it's not unique, right? Um, he almost deconstructs. He almost logs on and says, I'm rejecting this. Or I'm going to reconstruct my faith in a way that lets me live however I want and enjoy the blessing of God without paying the cost of following him, right? He almost just deconstructs. He looks at his experience and what he's promised, and he says, you know what, I think I'm going to redefine what is true on the basis of my experience. That's the heart of deconstruction. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God's people throughout history have said. I'm going to do what feels good to me, right? Verse 15, he says, if I had really spoken this way, I would have been a traitor to your people. Uh, I have this in my head in the English Standard Version. English Standard Version says, um, if I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. Here's what's happened. People 10 years older than me that are deconstructing on social media, entire generations of people in their 30s are just walking away from the faith. And because of people in my generation that are deconstructing, people in their 20s are walking away from the faith in droves. If I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed a generation for your people. And remember that Asaph is a public leader among the people of God. It's one thing if like somebody in the back of the room deconstructs and walks away. It's a totally other thing if somebody that's very public does. If I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. So I tried to understand the wicked. I didn't try to understand why the wicked prosper. It was a difficult task. Verse 17, watch, watch this. This is what I love. This is, if you've got your own Bible, this is the hinge point of the whole psalm. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and then I understood. Okay, wait a minute. Asaph is walking through the parking lot, and he's all torn up inside. And why is it like this? And how does it work like this? And how is this fair? And is God good? And he said, and then I got into the sanctuary. I got into your presence. I went into worship. And then I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. What's the destiny, Asaph? Verse 18, truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to their destruction. Jeff Bezos, apart from Jesus, is going to ride his rocket ship right into, a, right into the abyss, right? The person in your life who does not, that does not claim the name of Jesus, that is walking in radical unfaithfulness and seems to be succeeding left and right, they're set on a slippery path. So by all means, preach the gospel to them so they don't slip off. Verse 21, it says, here's what, then here's his realization. He has a little bit of a kairos moment, for those of you that know that language. He says, then I realized that my heart was bitter. I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and, angu anguish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a, a senseless animal to you. He says, actually, this thing that I thought was a them problem is a me problem. How often? You want, you want to know what maturity feels like? That. Maturity is this sudden realization that mm, I'm the common denominator in basically all of my problems. <laughs> uh, shoot, right? He says, I was so bitter and torn up inside. I was so foolish. He said, peace was hard to find in a midst that was gone wrong. And then he said, discovers this. He says, this is what he discovers in the sanctuary. I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. 
You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I I read this verse at every funeral. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And I will tell you what, first and third miscarriage may be the first one. Steph comes out of the bathroom, it happened at home. It's the middle of the night, and I think to myself, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let me tell you a scary thing about preaching. Some of you, I'm the only preacher you've really ever listened to consistently. Like Preston has listened to everything I've ever said out loud. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a little culty, but okay. (laughs) I'm just saying. Um, Some of you have had other preachers than me, and you'll have preachers after me. But can I tell you a scary thing? You could listen to me for 30 minutes or 30 years, and I'll be lucky if you remember one thing I ever said out loud. It's how God keeps us humble. I'm forming your subconscious while we do this. I'm not forming your conscious. You're not really supposed to wake up and remember every morning. These are the five things that Kyle's told me. Here we go. It's, I'm shaping something at the level of your heart. And so in my Christian life of like 20 years, I can maybe only remember, and I've been in traditions that like value the word, right? Traditions like ours, where we're in the text for 30 or 40 minutes, not like a 10-minute pat on the butt, see you next week, right? Like, I can remember maybe two or three sermons. And one I remember, one I remember was on this passage that I heard at Bible college. It was spiritual enrichment week. Now, my argument is that in Bible college, isn't every week spiritual enrichment week? (laughs) But we had a week to spiritually enrich us in a way that was evidently more enriching than the enrichment we got. And um, so this guy, I don't remember his name, preached Tuesday, Wednesday, th- listen, by the way, we had to go to chapel three times a week, so I don't want to hear any of you whine about an hour in church, okay? So we went to chapel three times a week, went, then left there and studied theology for six more hours. And uh, so he preached Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on this passage, and I will never forget the sermon that he preached on this passage, because he said, here's what this passage is all about. Asaph goes into the sanctuary, and he is recalibrated and reconnected to the heart of God right? He's recalibrated and reconnected to the heart of God. See, here's what's going to happen from about 12 o'clock today until about 1040 on Sunday next week. The calibration of your heart is going to get out of whack. Now, some of us, right, will like engage in some spiritual practices or listen to some worship music or be in a small group or these kinds of things, and that'll help But the stuff that you're going to deal with this week, some of you know what it is, some of you don't want to know what it is. I would prefer not to know what it is because then I'd probably be a little less anxious. Um, It's going to knock our hearts out of calibration and it's going to have us asking, is God good? Is he worth paying the cost? Is it worth following him? All of these questions. And then, so we're going to come back in through the parking lot next, next weekend and we're going to have an opportunity to have our hearts recalibrated. To find, to find in the midst of a world gone wrong, To find in the midst of a world gone wrong, peace 
that passes understanding as we worship Jesus, right? In a world that is marked by trouble, when our minds and our hearts and our bodies are worn with anxiety and fear, worship paves the pathway to peace. And I want to talk about worship this morning, so let's take a look at this video while we do that. Peace for me looks like a warm path. (laughs) Peace for me is being surrounded by people and singing during worship. For me, peace looks like um, being free of your daily anxieties, um, worrying about the future. Um, And obviously you can't be completely free of that, but I try to like write down lists or stuff to get my mind off it, but ultimately the only um, way to do that is to give those things up to God. And honestly, it is really hard to answer this question because I am in a season with um, three little kids under four. And I think for the most part now though, I do equate peace with silence. And um, so as long as I can find moments in the day with some silence, that's where I find the most peace. I think that um, this change in my life and following Jesus is like, I don't worry about what everybody thinks anymore. At one time in my life, I believe that that consumed me, was worrying about what other people thought. And now it's just, it doesn't matter, you know? It doesn't matter if I look funny raising my hands. I just, I feel comfortable. And and that's how I know that I've grown in my faith because it just doesn't matter, you know, to anybody else. It's just the fact that I'm worshiping and that's the way that I'm worshiping. For me, worship used to be pretty difficult because when um, Kyle wasn't speaking and I was alone with my thoughts, I would just start thinking about all the things I had to do that day. Um, But then I realized what it actually was, and it's a time, very short time really, to actually um, stop worrying about all that stuff and um, be alone with God. Uh, and then it came a lot more naturally. I mean, I worried less about the singing and how I sounded, what other people were thinking, and uh, my lips just kind of moved, and I had time to find peace with the Spirit. So worship actually, I feel, looks a little bit different in our house. We often have music going um, on our phones. We play, like, just Spotify playlists, and the Zoe now refers to whenever she can identify uh Christian music. She calls it, is this a Jesus song? Um, And so that's worship, I think, for us. Um, We can normally sing every word, Zach and I, and so now it's leading to her being able to sing some of the uh, phrases in each of the worship songs. And so, yeah, that is so powerful in our home right now. And I think worship too is just really um, quiet prayer at night with them. Um, whether Zoe is delaying bedtime or not, I'm not sure, but she does ask to pray every night. And that's been really cool to be with the father or ask for his presence while um, our family is together before bedtime. 
Uh, the turning point on worship for me was really a process of finally hearing the message at church about, okay, worship is supposed to be a time you feel a little uncomfortable, you feel different than when you're walking through the rest of your week. And that's why we come to church, to feel that. So rather than lean away from that, I've been trying to lean into it um, and let myself feel like, okay, this is strange, but it's a good feeling to be with God. Um, and I, I have definitely felt a shift in the church that the more people um, embrace that feeling uncomfortable, it seems like the whole room is lifted and people sing louder without even meaning to. And uh, it's a lot easier for people to just um, embrace worship. Is that good? All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brett, where's Brett? Brendan? Brendan, remind me, I got that five bucks for you for saying that exactly like I wanted you to. It's great. It's perfect. So speaking of Bible college uh, for a minute, um, I, was, I was not at all popular in high school. Um, at least that was my perception. I think I brought things to the table, like Corey and Jess and Jenna Byler and I, we went to high school together. I think they would maybe articulate a different experience. I think I brought some stuff to the table, but I don't, I don't remember being really well-liked. I remember some moments of being bullied. And so when I got to Bible college, I was like, this is my time. <laughs> I made up for it. I, uh, it. So let me, in the student dining room at Moody, in the student dining room, it was built this really weird way. So around the perimeter of the room was this big square room. Around the perimeter were long rectangle tables and your, your floor, the floor you lived on, was you were assigned a table to sit at every year with a, with a pairing of a, a girl's floor. So it was your brother, your bro-sis, your brother-sister table. So there was that. And then in the middle, in like this area that was bizarrely better lit in the middle, were round tables. And round tables, like, you know, under the light of like, ah, like that's, that's where the cool kids sat. I sat at a round table. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and the group of, and with the group of people, the group of people stuff is like, guys, her eyes are about to roll out of her head. Um, she, uh, um, so the group of friends that I ate lunch with, in particular my senior year, we called it fun lunch. We called it funch. Fun lunch. And someone, someone missed one day. Someone missed one day. And, they were, and somebody said, oh, it's okay that you missed. Like, funch isn't an event. It's a lifestyle. It's not an event. It's a lifestyle. And then somebody kind of was like, but it's also an event. <laughs> um, and the reason I'm, I'm telling you this, I mean, Bible college was fun. I started dating. I, I ran for student body president. I started dating staff. She was on staff. I was a student. There was eight years apart from us. If Moody Bible Institute had a people magazine or like a gossip section in our student newspaper, we would have been in it. And uh, you better believe, you better believe, I loved every minute, and Steph hated every minute, right? Um, and, uh, and so I, I, uh, I, I bring this up because worship, uh, like, like funch, worship is like funch. It is an event, it is also, but it's, it's not an event, it's a lifestyle, but it's also an event, right? Worship is not an event, it's a lifestyle, but, it, but, but it's also an event. You see, the event of worship, what we do when we gather here on Sundays or, or come to a worship night, that's where we gather as God's people to meet with him. 
Now, his presence is everywhere all the time. We call that theologically his omnipresence, that God is everywhere in all places at the same time. But sometimes when we worship, God's presence becomes more noticeable or more tangible, and we would call that his manifest presence, okay? His manifest presence draws near. We have an encounter with him because Scripture says he he inhabits the praises of his people. In that place of worship, now you may think we're kneeling, we're raising our hands, we're clapping. You may think that's weird. When God's manifest presence got near to David, David was like, I think I should be naked for this. Okay, so there's David danced naked in the presence of the Lord once. So we're going to draw the line there. You know what I'm saying? That's where does orderly worship end? Nudity. Um, but, 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 but in the place of worship, in that place of worship, in that event, when God's presence draws near, what do we experience? We experience peace. The things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And things kind of reorder themselves and rearrange themselves. And we find peace. We experience peace in worship. And, and here's why. Worship is unique because it aligns. It's a practice. It aligns what we think with what we feel with our bodies. So as we sing, which is bodily, or raise our hands or kneel, but even if just, we're just singing, the thoughts that we're thinking that are true and the feelings that we're feeling, they line up. And it, and it seems to me like peace is able to kind of get down in there then. Right? It gets down into our bodies. Peace gets down into our bodies and our hearts and our minds through worship. And the event of worship is meant to catalyze a lifestyle of worship. The ideal is that this one hour and 15 minutes usually transforms all of our waking hours into moments where we notice and interact with God's presence, where we notice and interact with the presence of Jesus. And even in our ordinary days. And and we do this through like, And the thing is that this can happen like intentionally through like the other practices we do, Bible reading, worship, listening to scripture, prayer, but it can also just happen in like the ordinariness of our days, right? Like you're just driving down the road and something happens and all of a sudden I'm interacting with the presence of Jesus. You're interacting with the presence of Jesus over just this thing that's happening, right? The lifestyle of worship is one in which our feet walk the path of peace, Being near to Jesus carves out room where the nearness of God is our good, and and we find peace there. Now, here's what I am not saying. Listen to me. Here's what I am not saying. I'm going to get loud for a minute, so if you're sleeping, you hear what I'm saying, okay? What I am not saying is that if you have like a chronic or seasonal anxiety, or if you're like, there's a clinical anxiety issue that you're walking through, the answer is not crank up the worship music louder and pray it away. Okay, it is, again, it is not less than that, but it is significantly more than that, right? So where are we praying together for healing, like in a more specific way? Um, where, is, where is the role that therapy is playing? Where's the role that medication is playing in our lives, right? These are all things that, like, all resources that God has given us. I'm not saying that a lifestyle of worship, like, makes all of our anxiety disappear. There's some things that we need to go full court press with and go deal with and run at, Right? And so we do that again. We do that through medicine and through therapy and maybe some more intentional prayer. Um, but, 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 but what we also, what we, what we need, so we need to hold that without losing sight of the reality of walking with Jesus is that we can experience like at a general level more peace than the average bear, right? We can, we can hold to those truths at once, right? We can say that like walking with Jesus, I'm gonna get to experience more peace than maybe somebody who isn't. 
while also saying there might be some anxiety in my life that I need to go after in a specific way. And that walking with Jesus and interacting with the Prince of Peace, that general state of peace that's possible as we interact with Jesus, that's what the ancients called practicing the presence of God. And then as we live this lifestyle of worship, individually and as families, when we gather together for the event of worship, we find that God's manifest presence shows up even stronger, right? That like the tide that rolled in, rolled in, rolls in higher the next time, right? And so these things kind of work together to catalyze these powerful moments of encounter, maybe on a Sunday gathering, that lead to deeper moments of encounter throughout the week, that lead to deeper moments. And then all of a sudden, we've got, now we've got this engine, and we've got this momentum and the cycle going that's really, really good. But, but here's the thing. We need both. We need both the event and the worship. And this is where I just want to end this morning. Um, we need the event of worship to shape us into worshiping people, and we need a lifestyle of worship to increase the power of the event. We need both. Because one of the things I've tended to notice as I've followed Jesus is that there are people who do one to the exclusion of the other. I mean, a lot of you may have even been raised to like, I go to church, I get there when it starts, as soon as there's an amen, I'm out the door and check, I've done my duty for the week. That is, that is not the fullness of what Jesus envisions for you. I just want to let you know that. I don't want to shame you for that because sometimes all we know, that's all we've given is like, come for the hour, check the box, move on. Right? And then all of a sudden we're like, shoot, this Jesus just keeps asking for more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but it, it is more than that one hour event. It, it is more than just doing our duty for the hour. Uh, it's a great place to start, it's not a good place to stay. Okay? Now, on the other hand, I know Christians who've maybe been burned by the church or, or just, they're so good at living the lifestyle that they almost come across to me, I don't know if they come across this way to you, but they kind of come across to me that like gathered worship is beneath them. Um, now sometimes that's like the I'm a theology major at Bible college version, like church is me sitting in a pub talking with theology with my friends. Okay, that is church, but it is not church, right? Sometimes that's like the person who's been really burnt by church and just can't do it anymore, so they, maybe they have a rich devotional life. I know people like this. They have a rich devotional life. They're walking with the character and competency of Jesus, but they've not been inside a church building since, you know, as my mother would say, Jesus wore short pants. I don't know what that means, but it's just something my mom says. Um, but... My contention this morning is that the pathway to peace is paved by stones of lifestyle and event, okay? And my, my contention this morning is that maturity in the way of Jesus is both lifestyle and event. Worship paves the way to peace. It's how we get our minds and our hearts and our bodies to align because Paul says, the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Amen.